Well, good morning. This morning we're going to uh, be looking at, uh, we're in uh, the last verses of chapter 4, so we're going to be looking at verses 12 through 19 this morning. Uh, The topic is still suffering, and uh, we'll get to that in just a a moment. Unjust suffering, by the way. I've got to kind of keep that... uh, that uh, that note in there is that uh, this is suffering for the cause of Christ, uh, not because uh, you did you broke the law. <laughs> so, in fact, he makes that quite clear all the way through the text. He keeps reminding us of that. But at any rate, before we do, I got a couple of public service announcements uh, to make. Well, I've been at, they want to the uh, I've been asked to uh, to I think they're doing it in other classes as well to. To, to to announce some of the things that are going to be going on so that they can keep announcements to a minimum uh, during the morning service. So I have no problem doing that. So anyway, starting March, uh, March 15th, uh, there's going to be a small group uh, uh, meeting here at the church. That's on a Thursday at 6.30, studying the book of Galatians. And also there's a, I guess that's you, isn't it? That has a sermon-based uh, small group starting on April 13th. Uh, I don't have a location for that, so <laughs> it hasn't, hasn't been uh, uh, decided yet. And then also on March 15th, well, this doesn't work because I was told one of these is on Thursday and said March 15th. Anyway, either March 14th, 15th, or 16th, because I'm not sure now because they gave me the same date for both both uh, both events. Uh, but at any rate, on, on whatever the Wednesday in the middle of March is, uh, there's a fundamental uh, fundamentals of the faith uh, class going to uh, a small group that's going to be starting. It'll be meeting here at the church as well. Uh, if you are new to the faith. And and you have never been through that, you should go through it. If you're old to the faith and it's been a while since you've reviewed it, maybe you ought to do it too. Uh, but at any rate, it's, it's, a great, it's, a great, uh, it's a great class. And then on whatever the day after that is, Thursday in March, uh, the Galatians class will be starting as, as well. So those are the public service announcements for this morning. And maybe next week I can find out what the right dates are. But at any rate, uh, there, that's, what, that's what I've got. So this morning we're going to be looking at uh, 1 Peter chapter chapter 4 verses uh, verses uh, verses 12 through 19. We basically after this week we have two maybe three weeks I haven't really decided if I want want to divide up one of the paragraphs in in chapter 5 yet. I've been looking at that but I haven't made up my mind. So, at any rate, we got two or three weeks left left in First Peter, and we'll be finishing it, finishing that up. Um, so, this morning, as we as we come into the text this morning, just to, by way of reminder, Peter has been talking about uh, the fact that uh, that as believers, very often we are called upon. It's not. He, he made it very clear in this book that. Not everybody all the time is going to be suffering for the cause of Christ, but there is the very real possibility that any time you could be suffering for Christ. That's really the text. And he's also kind of mentioned that there are some who are currently suffering for the cause of Christ. 
are being persecuted, whatever term you want to use in there. Uh, but uh, but he, he's, he's made that kind of clear. You have to remember that this book wasn't written to just one group of people. It was written to a, a broad spectrum of, of, of churches at that time. And, and some of those churches may may have been in very good conditions where they were well accepted, uh, they were treated well, and, and then there could have been the opposite, those who were under immense persecution. Uh, we see this throughout Paul's writings. Uh, obviously, there he had some issues when he was in Lystra, er, uh, Der- Derby, and, and Iconium, where he actually was stoned, and, and uh, uh, they were so upset with him there. Uh, we, have, we have where he where the apostles were often imprisoned, and uh, we have also uh, uh, Paul's writings to Thessalonica, where they, because of the because of naming Christ, the the, the uh, people were against him. So we have a, a number of various situations uh, that went on during uh, during this uh, during during this period. So the idea then is 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 of course the initial suffering. The initial suffering for Christ came Jew on Jew. Um, and and uh, then it spread to as the Gentiles embraced Christ as well to them. So we have a number of a number of issues that were going on during this time. So Paul, so Paul, Peter uh, writes basically basically informing them that there's a very real possibility of of facing persecution for the cause of Christ, and he's giving them then an encouragement. And and a and a call to how to function under those circumstances. So that's that's really where we are. And and he's he's kind of bringing this to a close. He's going to bring it up again in chapter five. But for the most part, he's bringing this section to a close in this part of the text. So uh, before we get to uh, verses, the verses, are there any prayer requests that anyone wants to share this morning? Yeah. Uh, I have a friend, her name's Andrea, and her nephew died Thursday morning, 34 years old, of an asthma attack. Really? Really pray for Andrea and her sister. Sad. Okay. Well, let's... Sorry, John, and um, I'm still dealing with job stuff, so reapplying for everything, so please keep me in your prayers. Okay. Really like a job next year. All right. David, can I ask you to open this this morning? Heavenly Father, thank you for this day that you've given us. You have assembled us together. You have commanded us to, to join together to bring worship and glory to you, to hear your words, and to study your study your truth. We thank you for the truth that you've given us. In First Peter, we thank you for the message that we received from Pastor Steve. In just a little while from now, we thank you that you are growing us and that you are stretching us and that you are sanctifying us, that we would be more like Christ, be more like your son, and love one another in a deep and fervent way. We thank you that you have given us all things richly to enjoy and that you have given us your word here and your truth, and that makes our life stand in any any situation. We ask for these that are are going through trial, and and, uh, we pray, pray for Rebecca and Andrea and her sister. We thank you that you are a God who hears, and we thank you that you would hear our prayer to this morning, asking that you would give Rebecca wisdom as she is exploring jobs, and that you would provide for her and provide a place that will bring you glory and bring you honor and meet all her need. 
and we would pray for Andrea as she is suffering through this tragedy of her, of her nephew. I pray that you would give her comfort and that your Holy Spirit would, uh, would reveal to them your truth and your word and that as you call along other believers beside them, that they would encourage them to, to trust in you and to give their life and their heart to you. So we thank you for these things. We thank you that you are a God that is at work. And we thank you that this morning we had the opportunity to pray on their behalf. And we pray that you would answer our prayers and that you prepare our hearts to worship together your Son, our King. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. So, so as we get, begin, I want to look uh, first of all at verses 12 through 14, which I entitled the uh, Blessings in Trial. Uh, Verse 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trials among you which have come upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share in the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exaltation. For if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. So uh, we want to look first of all at these verses. And he begins by saying, Beloved. And beloved is another is a term that he used also in 2.11. It's uh, apagat. Agapetos, which uh, basically has the idea of uh, conveying tenderness, compassion, uh, affection, and care. It's intended. It's intended to reassure them. He uses it here to a, to reassure them of God's love. It's a derivative of agape. So it is the God love. It is this, the willed love uh, idea that is being expressed here, and that's what he's saying to them. He has chosen to love them as God has chosen to love them, and they're beloved in God is the idea that he's wanting them to understand. And then he goes on and he says, don't be surprised. Uh, it's the same word that he used in verse 4 of this chapter where he talked about not uh, not being surprised that, that your old friends, after you're converted, no longer don't understand your new life and don't understand why you're not still running down to the dew drop in with them. Uh, that, that kind of idea. Uh, it's that same word. It uh, Peter is telling them, telling them here that persecution should not surprise the believer. That's really the idea here. It shouldn't surprise you. It shouldn't surprise you that the world is not real kindly toward you, is, is what he's expressing here. In John chapter 15, Jesus told us, If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you're not of this world, but I chose you out of this world, because of this, the world hates you. And in chapter 17, <clears throat> chapter 17, verse, uh, verse 14, he says, he says this, I have, I have given them your word, and the, and, uh, and the world hates them, because they are not of this world, even as I am not of this world. And in First John, uh, uh, in First John, uh, three thirteen, he repeats the same kind of idea: not to be surprised that the world hates you. Uh, I remember um, kind of an interesting thing about about uh, a lot of the evangelism tracks that we run into. You know, they have themes about Christianity as kind of uh, a panacea. Uh, that everything is going to be okay, everything is going to be all right, everything is going to be hunky-dory, you know, is kind of the idea. Um, not that I have any qualms with uh, with the four spiritual laws, but the just telling everybody God has a wonderful plan for your life. Yes, he does. But 
you need to to understand some other things about Christianity as well. You know, when I was uh, when I was in seminary, um, Grace Church down south was uh, was. Uh, was building their evangel- discipleship evangelism program, and they had visited uh, in Florida the the people that had put together evangelism explosion. And it's a good program, and it does a, a couple of very good things, and it, it, it's worked very well. A lot of churches have used that that program very successfully. But when they looked at it, they were a little bit puzzled with something, and they changed something. And when they went back to them and told them, we liked everything, but we changed this. And what they changed was evangelism explosion called, it went through the whole whole evangelistic model of God loving us and Christ dying for us and all that that encountered and and how we come to be saved and then it called for a decision and after you made the decision then they told you the bad side well the guys at Grace said well we changed that we told the reality of what Christianity meant, what the what it meant to become a Christian, what you faced when you became a Christian, and then asked for a decision. And the response was, well, you won't get as many converts. <laughs> and their response was, but they'll be real. Yeah. And that's the point. That's the point here. Christianity in this world is a hard road to walk. And that's what, that's what Peter is saying here. It can be a very hard road to walk. He goes on to say, he goes on to say, don't be surprised, and he calls them, uh, don't be surprised at the fiery trials. Uh, this, uh, this particular word is, uh, is a process uh, here. It's talking about burning. Literally, that's what the word, what this, what this word means. It, it, uh, it, it comes out of, the idea comes out of Proverbs, uh, 27, 21 in the LXX. Uh, it, it reads a, a little bit different and it brings out this idea of it a little bit better. It's talking about a smelter's fire is the idea here. The word is used in a number of different ways in reality, but that's one of the ways in, in Proverbs 27. It's used in, it's used in Revelation 18, 9, uh, 9 as literal burning in a literal fire is the, is the idea that's used there. It's used figuratively here to speak of the type of trials we face. And, and I think the idea here is because in chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, he's already talked about, uh, about the fire of, uh, uh, or the the smelter's fire uh, there in six he says in this you greatly rejoice even though for a little while if necessary you have been grieved by various trials for the for the proof of your faith being more precious than gold which is perishable even though it's tested by fire may be found in the result of the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ it's the same idea that he's expressing here he's repeating that idea again is that that God in the process of your sanctification tries your faith to prove it is the idea here. Now, it's not a test that he expects you to fail. It's not a test to tell God whether you're true or not. It's a test to tell you who you are. It's to prove you. It also is a purifying fire uh, that gets the dross out of the church. Uh, it, gets, it gets those who are just tares that are among us out of the church. They, they're the first ones to run. They... They, they flee the idea. So he says, don't find this strange. 
This is the same idea that expressed by James in chapter 1, verses, verses, actually 2, I put 3, I forgot verse 2, I guess. Consider it all joy, brother, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith brings about perseverance, and let perseverance have its perfect work, so that you may be perfect and complete and lacking in nothing. God uses trials in the life of a believer to test, to prove, to refine, to bring them closer to Him to make them mature and able to stand is the idea that's being expressed here. And he says, he says don't, don't think it's strange. We've already kind of covered that. Believers must realize that God in His providence in their life is working. And it's not that you then go, why me, God? I mean, the real question is, why not? But, but that's the idea here. It's not that you start blaming God. Look what he did to me. You know, that's not the idea here. The idea here is he's proving you. He's testing you. He's making you right uh, before him is, is, is the idea here. They realize that God is always in control. And his purpose here is to build your faith. It's to build your faith. It's to make you mature. That's, that's the idea. That's what he said. Uh, that's what James has said in his text. That's the idea here. Uh, Matthew 5, 11 through, uh, through 12. And I suspect in a few weeks we'll be hearing 17 points on this verse. Uh, but at any rate, today I'm just going to read the verse. Uh, Blessed are you when people, people insult you, persecute you, falsely say all kinds of evil against you. And then in, in verse 12, he, he concludes by saying, because of me, rejoice and be glad. That's, that's the idea. Uh, and that's, what, that's what basically what Peter is saying here. He's, he's, he's basically expanding on what Jesus said in the Beatitudes. And oh, by the way, this is a Beatitude because it begins with blessing. And then he goes on. Excuse me. He goes on to chapter to verse 13 and he says, but to the degree that you share in the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. He, he puts in here a contrast. He goes, but, but even though you're facing suffering and suffering is not fun and it's not, not a great thing, he says, but rejoice. That's, that's what he's saying. Here's the contrast. Even though you're suffering, rejoice. That's kind, of, that's kind of not the way we think about things, but that's what he's saying here. We're not to look negatively on the, on, on, on the suffering. And it is, in a sense, at least to the human mind, it's a contradiction. Paul brought this out in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 10, where he, where he said, We're sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. That's, that's the idea here. Yeah, trials and suffering are not pleasant. Uh, they don't make you feel good. They don't make, make, make your life just hunky-dory. But Peter says, because of what they're meant for, we can rejoice. And then he goes, he goes on and he gives us a little bit more about it. He gives us, he gives us a reason uh, why we are to, to have this positive outlook in the context of joy uh, when, we, when we face various trials that are testing and are, and are difficult. He says, he says, you share in the suffering of Christ. 
The idea of the suffering of Christ, uh, of sharing in the suffering of Christ, runs throughout the Pauline epistles. I gave you a whole list of a uh, list of verses there, starting with Romans uh, Romans eight seventeen and running through Second Timothy two twelve. All that that list has to do with him. I wanted to pick out Philippians one twenty nine. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in Him but also to suffer for His sake. That's, that's how Paul looked upon it. It's been given to you. It's, it's an honor, uh, is what he is saying here. It's a privilege. It's an honor. Uh, now, you've got to be careful here. You can't take the concept here that somehow Christ's suffering in his incarnation were incomplete. That's not the idea. That's not what he's saying here. Christ's sacrifice was totally complete. Salvation is totally a result of what he did on our behalf. That's, that's, that's not to be entered into here. That's not the idea here. It's more the idea, uh, uh, it's more the idea of, of, uh, of, of, of identification with. We're identifying with his suffering. Jesus is, in a sense, allowing us to identify with what he went through on behalf of others, uh, is, is the idea here. John 19.30, Jesus said from the cross, it is finished. There is nothing needed to be added to what Jesus did on the cross. It's totally complete, totally sufficient. But, well, not but, uh, along with that, uh, God has, ha- has, allowed, has allowed his believers, has brought them in for their training, for their benefit, for their encouragement, for their strengthening, for their maturing to also suffer. And the idea here is when you suffer as a Christian and you suffer with rejoicing, it's a testimony to the world. That's how we are sharing in Christ's suffering. It becomes a testimony of who he is and who he is in our life. That's, that's, that's the idea that he wants, us, he wants us to see here. It's a privilege. It's an honor. Uh, and then he goes on and he says, <clears throat> excuse me. He, go, he goes on and he says, rejoicing, uh, sharing in his suffering, keep on rejoicing so that the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. And, and he, he's, he's saying here that our testimony for Christ results in, uh, may result in affliction for his sake, which identifies us with his suffering because of that re- relationship. But we are to be jubilant is another way of saying this, uh, this uh, phrase, rejoice with exaltation, that we might be jubilant, uh, that it's a, it's a jubilee in a sense, uh, that, that, uh, that we have been associated uh, with his glory, at the, or, or we've been associated with his glory at his revelation. And at that point, we will rejo- rejoice with exaltation. The idea is that we would be overjoyed, looking for the imminent return of Jesus Christ. That's what he's talking about here. Throughout Peter, he has, he has pushed the issue of the fact that Jesus' return is any moment. We don't set a date. We don't know the time. We don't know when it will be, but it could be any moment. That's, that's the idea here. If you are really lucky, it could be before I finish the next word. <laughs> but at any rate, but at any rate, it's, and, but that's how imminent it is. Eagerly awaiting the revelation to share. And the idea is that we actually share in Christ's victory is, is what he's saying here. We participate in his glory. Romans. 
chapter 8, verse 17. And if children also heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. That's, that's what Peter's expressing here, the same idea that Paul's expressing. Uh, that's that's the, the context of suffering. And then he's, he goes on to say, in another conditional statement, this one he says, uh, he says, verse 14, And if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. It's an interesting uh, conditional statement. If you're insulted for Christ, you're blessed. That's that's what he's saying here. Uh, that's what he's saying. It's it, that's the statement that he's making here. It results. It results. Uh, if you're insulted for the name of Christ, uh, this is talking about verbal insult in this particular case. The particular Greek word that's used here is a word that's used for verbal 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 insult. Uh, it's a it's a word that uh, could be translated. Uh, reviled or denounced and and this is probably the most common uh, type of thing you're going you're going to run into until people get violent but at this point uh, that's what he's talking about and most of what these people have suffered is this kind of this kind of insult being made fun of christianity in the early days had all kinds of uh, false uh, teaching that was put out about them. Uh, they looked at the communion. Uh, non-believers looked at the communion, not understanding anything about it or what it symbolized or, or how it was even conducted and believed Christians were cannibals because of the flesh and the blood. And, and they propagated that lie. And, and, and they were denounced based upon that, that kind of an idea. Uh, we're going to get to this later in the later in the text uh, but the holy kiss they they basically wrote that off as some kind of uh, homosexual activity uh, those kinds of things those things are kinds of things happened in the first century because they didn't understand what it meant they had no basis for understanding it so they just made assumptions and then used those as charges or attacks and that's that's the kind of thing he's talking about here uh, and it has the idea to heap on these insults. It's not like they just called you a name once. They keep on doing it. Uh, it's, it's a continual kind of thing uh, that he's talking about here to be denounced for the name of Christ. And, and here when it, when it says the name of Christ, that was a very, very typical usage in, in the first, uh, first century, the first centuries of the church, to talk about doing things in the name of Christ. And that's, and that's still what we do when we pray. We say, in Jesus' name, that kind of idea. What we mean there in saying that is his whole person, who he is, his divinity, his, his humanity, his sacrifice, all that encompasses the salvation he provided, everything that is involved with Christ, his, his omnipotence, his power, his glory, his honor, all of those things. Are, are invested in that kind of an idea. In Acts chapter 4, verse 12, it says, there is, no sal- there, is, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Uh, that's, that's the power of this name. Uh, incidentally, I don't know if you ever saw it or remember it, but down on Truxton there's a, there's a unity church. And they used to have a sign out front. 
and they kept it, it was in their lawn, and it said, one God, many ways. No, one way, Jesus Christ. There's only one way. There's only one means of salvation, Jesus Christ. That's, that's the point here. That's what he's driving home. We represent the only means by which man can be saved, our Lord Jesus Christ. That's, that's the idea that he wants to express here. And he goes on to say, if this happens to you, if you, if you come under these insults, if you are berated, and they heap insult upon insult upon you, they call you names, they belittle you, they, all of these kinds of things, he says, he, says, he says, and you're doing this because you are a Christian, because you, are, because you name Jesus Christ, you're blessed. And then he says, this is why you're blessed. Because in all of that, the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. He says, you are blessed. In 3.14, he wrote, Peter wrote, but if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And, and do not fear their fear and do not be troubled. Uh, that's, that's, that's what he's, he's going through all the way through here. And then he, he quotes from Isaiah eleven twelve, where he talks about the Spirit of God resting upon me. In that place, it's a, it's a messianic verse. Uh, but that's the idea here. The Spirit rests upon me. He repeats, it's a repetitive in the, in the expression because he uses it twice. The Spirit of glory and of God. Understand He's bringing the whole triune God into the text here. Uh, That's that's the idea. Uh, It it rests upon you. The fullness of God might be a way of saying it. In the context of suffering for the name of Christ uh, and Christ's glory, verse 13, the idea is the suffering Christian knows that the Spirit of Christ and of God rests upon him. Even in the midst of that suffering, you are still God's child. He is still there. Your spirit, his spirit, which indwells you and will not leave you, is there. And that's, that's where you're to turn. That's where you find your strength. That's where you are to ride out the storm of tribulation. And then he goes on, and he, uh, he now comes to understanding the trial, trying to give some understanding of the trial. And, he, and this is in verses 15 through 18, where Peter writes, Make sure that none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a troublesome meddler. And I'm going to stop there this time. Obviously, that's kind of an obvious statement. In other words, don't if you're in jail because you killed somebody or because you stole something or because you've, caught, you've been a, a, a troublemaker, don't say you're suffering for Christ because you're not. You're suffering because you broke the law. That's, that's the bottom line here. Now, but he says, he says, a thief or a murderer, these were, in New Testament times, these were capital crimes. Uh, we've kind of lost the concept of capital punishment today. Uh, but in the New Testament times, it was a reality. It was a reality. They didn't put up with it. They they probably had a low crime rate in a lot of places, too. But nevertheless, uh, they, they, uh, they, these were capital crimes. And then he says, an evildoer, which is kind of an all-encompassing, uh, kind of an all-encompassing kind of idea. It means any crime. Whatever's on the books as a crime is, is really the idea here. Uh, if you've committed that, don't do that. Don't, don't say that you're suffering for Christ, you know. 
if you get a speeding ticket, don't try to say you were speeding for Jesus. You know, that's just not, that's just not going to work. I'm going to tell you a little story. The day I graduated from seminary, I was coming home and car, there was a bunch of people that had gone with me, you know, and so the car was full and we had a station wagon that held a lot of people. One of those great big old tanks. And uh, uh, when we were coming back, coming down the grapevine, just back in the days when you kind of had to actually work the car, somebody didn't shift out of overdrive. And the next thing I know, you know, 80 down the grapevine will get you a ticket. It kind of took, it kind of deflated the good feeling of graduating. God kind of does that sometimes. Keep your eye on the ball, you know, is kind of the idea here. See, I told on myself. But anyway, anyway, uh, he says, don't be, uh, don't commit crime. You know, I wasn't suffering for Jesus. I was suffering for stupidity. But anyway, uh, that, that's the idea here. He's, and then he uses this term. He says, a troublesome meddler. It's an interesting term. I looked at a number of places about it because there's all kinds of ideas about this one. It's, it's, it's a, basically someone who meddles in the affairs of someone else. It's sticking your nose in where it doesn't belong is, is kind of the idea here that he's, he's talking about. In some cases, in Greek literature, apparently it was used to talk about a spy, you know, covert kind of operation. It's, it's not a good thing. It's somebody who would just go around making trouble. First um, Thessalonians. First Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 11. On the right page here. Verse 4, 11. And to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your own hands just as, just as we have commanded you. And then in second, uh, second Thessalonians chapter three, verses 11 and 12, Paul writes, For we hear that some among you are walking in an unruly manner, uh, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Same kind of idea here. It's not the same word, but it's the same idea. Not uh, now, now, such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ that work with quietness and eat your own bread. That's the idea here. That's, that's what he's talking about. You're not to be sticking your nose in where it doesn't belong. You're not to be involving yourself in affairs that are not yours. Given the fact that it also talks to interfering in, in other operations, it, it kind of gives us the idea not to be involved in, 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 in any Ill, illegal activity uh, that would interfere with operations even to the level of society and government is, is the idea here. In other words, what it's saying is here, be careful what kind of protest you decide to stick your nose into. You know, view them carefully. Uh, don't get involved with things. When I was uh, when I was uh, supervising the the uh, the fleet facility at the Bakersfield Police Department, we had an incident uh, one one day. Uh, the uh, the guy who was this is years ago. This is quite a while ago because I've been retired for ten years. So you know, <laughs> it was probably eighteen years ago. But anyway, at any rate, um, the uh, People who were demonstrating around the abortion clinics um, showed up at the police department. I don't know why. I don't remember what the circumstance that they showed up. But the guy who ran it 
basically was not a very good witness. He was throwing a fit in the in the office in the front office. Now you understand the front office basically has civilian workers in it, but there's always one gun up there. There's always one cop up there, plus a captain or a lieutenant, excuse me. Uh, but uh, the officer who was working the desk that day went around to try to deal with the guy, and the guy got in his face and was yelling and screaming. Never a good thing to do. But he took a pin, and he did that at the cop. And he hit the floor when it was in cuffs in about two seconds, screaming and yelling, you know. You know what he deserved? Hitting the floor and being in cuffs. He broke the law. He stuck his nose where it didn't belong. Incidentally, the cop was a Christian who hated abortion. But at any rate, you know, that, that, that's the idea here. Be careful what you get involved in and how you conduct yourself. You know, that's not the way to conduct yourself. That's not the way. Uh, but that's the idea here. He says, if you're any involved in any of these things, don't say you're suffering for Christ, because you're not. You're suffering for being a malcontent or whatever. Anyways, in verse 16, he says, but if anyone suffers as a Christian, now he's going to make the contrast, but if, that's a contrast here. Not as a criminal, but as a Christian, he is not to be put to shame, but is to glorify, the, uh, glorify God in this name. And it's an interesting verse, how it's constructed here. What he is saying to us, if you're suffering because you are a believer. In other words, if any of these things are happening to you because you name the name of Jesus Christ. That's the first thing he's saying here. He says, he's saying, he's saying there's no shame, no dishonor. No dishonor here. Incidentally, this is, this is one of three places in the New Testament that the name Christian is used. It's only used three times in the New Testament. The first time is at Antioch uh, in Acts 11.26. The second time is by King Agrippa when, when uh, Paul is testifying before him, where he basically sarcastically says, you almost convinced me to be a Christian in, in, in Acts uh, 26.8, and the other time is here. In the New Testament era, Christian being called a Christian was was considered an insult. Not to Christians, but to the rest of the world. It was meant as a derogatory term. It wasn't, it wasn't embraced as we embrace it, to embrace it today. It was a derogatory term. That's, that's the idea here. And so he's basically saying this. He's, say, he's saying this. If people are slandering you by calling you a Christian, you're not to be put to shame. There's no dishonor in that. In other words, they may see it as dishonor, but there is no dishonor. And then he goes on to say, and he goes on to say, but give, but it is glory, it, but is but to glory, um, but to glory of God in, in in this name. And the idea here is is God is glorified when you're called Christian. When these unbelievers call you Christian, God is. That's what he's saying. God is glorified. There's no shame in being called a Christian, even though the unbelievers see it as derogatory. And, and in this case, it would be, be a form of persecution or attempted persecution. They're saying, no, that's not the case. There's no dishonor in that. God is glorified when you're called Christian. Because it's naming the name of your Savior. Jesus Christ. That's that's the idea here. And then he goes on. He goes on from that. 
do we glorify God in his name, Christian? That's the, the idea here. And then in verse 17, he says, For the time of judgment to begin with the house of God, uh, and if it begins with us first, then what will be the outcome for those who do not ob- ob- uh, obey the gospel? This is kind of a difficult task. Uh, t- uh, text he says because he he says for if judgment begins by the household of god notice incidentally the word judgment here uh the word judgment is 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 uh is a word that doesn't mean condemnation uh it has a broad it's a broad term it can be can be used to condemn but it's also used to exonerate it has both sides uh, it's it, it's the idea of a good or a bad evaluation. As a supervisor, I used to have to give evaluations. I hated that. But anyway, I have to give evaluations. I had the tendency to give good ones, but nevertheless, every once in a while you had to give a bad one. Uh, but that's the idea here. It could be good, it could be bad. Uh, in this case, he is he is not using it negatively for the Christian, he says, for the time of judgment is to begin from with the house of God. Uh, but he says, he says, but in the Greek, the, the word that is translated in English here with the house of God probably should be translated from. Um, because, because Peter has already referred to the church, the, the, the ecclesia, the uh, assembly of believers as a spiritual house uh, and and he refers to it and Paul refers to it as the church in Galatians 6 10 and so he, he is saying that that's where judgment began from is is the idea here because we already know that for you and me who are in Jesus Christ the word of God clearly demonstrates that judgment has passed. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8.1. Uh, 2, Corinthians, uh, 2 Corinthians 11.32, uh, judgment uh, for us today is currently in the form of discipline, not condemnation. So this isn't the concept for the believer of condemnation. The household of God has been judged, so coming out from it is the idea here. And I think what Peter is doing here is he's picturing two Old Testament uh, uh, ideas. One is Ezekiel chapter 9, and the other is Malachi chapter 3. In Ezekiel chapter 9, it actually says it. The way I think this verse should be translated in, ver- in, uh, in verse six, it says he talks about judgment coming out from the sanctuary. What, what we have in, e- in Ezekiel and uh, and uh, and in Zachar and Malachi both is that Israel, who has failed God, has uh, now come under judgment. But in in Ezekiel, before God judges. He marks all of those who are faithful. And then he sends out from the sanctuary his avenging angels to execute those who are not marked. That, that's the picture that it's expressed here. In Malachi, in Malachi, uh, it is after the temple has been cleansed that the presence of, the presence of God takes up residence. 
So I think that's that's what he's trying to express here. He's not expressing that the church has to be judged in some kind of uh, um, manner as those who uh, who take a, take maybe a post a, a, a post a millennial type view or uh, or any of the other non pre. Uh, pre-tribulational views, take the mid-trib or the post-trib or any of those kind of views where there is this one class of Christians, this one particular group of Christians out of all the time of the church that have to be judged. Basically for all the rest of us, I guess, uh, is, is the idea. Uh, but that's not the idea here. Uh, the idea here is that God has already passed judgment on his believers. Uh, that judgment was paid in Jesus Christ. It's that the wrath of God was satisfied in Christ Jesus. He bore the full penalty for all your sin. Past, present, and future. It's all bore in him. That's past. But from that proceeds judgment to those who reject him. That's the picture both in, in, in Ezekiel and in Malachi. Oh, incidentally, the Ezekiel, the Ezekiel chapter 9, guess where judgment began with the elders of Israel? Chapter 5, verse 1, exhort the elders. That's what he has in mind. These are the texts he has in his mind as, 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 he, as, he, uh, as he goes through this. For the believer, judgment is past, he says, but the outcome... The outcome for those who do not obey the gospel. That's what he's pointing to here. He's, he's saying, you know, the time of judgment for you is past. Uh, that, that judgment has, was, was paid by Jesus Christ. Uh, faith in Jesus Christ settled that, settled that debt, settled that issue. But those, those who do not obey the gospel, it's frightening. Revelation chapter 20, verse 11. This is after the defeat of Satan at the uh, at the end of the of the millennial reign when Satan is released for that little brief time. After that event, verse eleven says, "Then I saw a great white throne, and Him who sat upon it, from whose presence the earth and and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. Then I saw the dead, the great, the small, standing before the throne, and books were open, and another book was open, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and the dead, and the de- and death and Hades were given up uh, to death which were in them, and they were judged, every one according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fires. And anyone whose name was not found in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fires. That's eternal punishment. That's what, the, that's what this text is talking about. You've been passed from that, but out of that there is, there is a judgment coming for those who reject Jesus Christ, and it's eternal hell is the idea here. And then in verse 18, he quotes, he quotes from... He quotes from Proverbs 11.31 from the Septuagint. It's worded a little bit different than it would be worded in your Bible, but it's the, basically the same, the same text. It's worded this way. And if it was difficult that the righteous is saved, what will, we be, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? 
that's what he's saying here. He's, he's asking this question. What becomes of them? Uh, it's conditional. He says it's, it was difficult. Uh, some translations have it as hard. It's used in, uh, this same word is used in Acts 14.8, uh, where, where Paul uh, uses this word to speak of the difficulty that he had in stopping uh, the people of the area trying to sacrifice to him because they thought he was a god. You know, they thought he was a god. And then, then, uh, uh, then it's used again in Matthew 4, 7, uh, where it speaks of how difficult it is to get through the narrow gate. Speaking of salvation, the, the few, the minority that make it through uh, the narrow gate. He, he speaks of its difficulty there. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, 12 and 13, he says, So then, my beloved, just as, just as you have always obeyed, not in my presence only, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work with you both to will and to do work for his good pleasure. And the idea here is, this is talking about the sanctification process. Uh, we're involved in that process, and it's hard work is the idea he's talking about here. Uh, but ultimately, it is God's work within you is the idea. So he's, he's, he's telling us here, he says, if it was difficult to save you, if that was difficult, if that was a hard task, and oh, by the way, read the crucifixion account, it was a hard task. It was a very hard task. That's, that's the idea here. It says, if that was difficult to save you, then what is it for the, for the sinner, for the unrighteous man and the sinner? And basically the idea is there basically is no hope for them. There is no second chance. There is no, no uh, redemption. Second Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 5. This is, this is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. Since it is right for God to repay with affliction those who afflicted you and to give rest to you who are afflicted and to us as well at the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, executing vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. They will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of, uh, presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. That's, that's, uh, that's what he's saying here. It was difficult to save you and me is impossible to save those who don't trust in Jesus Christ. That's, that's, that's what he's telling them at this point. And then we come to the final verse, verse 19. And he says this, Therefore, based on all the stuff I just said, based on all the stuff that preceded, based upon the difficulty with which it was to save you, and based upon the impossibility is those to, to save those who do not receive Jesus Christ, he says, Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God must entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing good. And basically that's what he's saying here. If you are facing suffering, if you are facing suffering, if that's where you are, <clears throat> he, says, he says, then you must commit yourself to a faithful creator. 
That's the first obligation that he brings here. You commit yourself to God. This word, uh, this word commit or entrust, depending on the, the text you're using, um, it has, it's the same word that Jesus used from the cross in, in, uh, in Luke uh, 23, verse, uh, verse uh, 46. He says, Father, in your ha- into your hands I commit my spirit, or entrust. It's the same idea of the same word for entrust. The same word is used there. Uh, in 2 Timothy 2.2, 2, uh, we, have, we have a very similar idea. I didn't mark that one. Anyway, uh, but, but the idea is we are to entrust ourselves to Jesus Christ, uh, to, to God as Jesus Christ did in his incarnation. And, he's, he, and he goes on to say, he, he says that a God, our creator, and incidentally, this is the only text in the New Testament that calls God creator. It's the only one. Uh, and it's very specific what he's saying here. He's basically saying the one by which all things exist everything that exists him that's the one you trust yourself to the one who made the worlds who set the universe in place who hung the stars in the sky who started the rotation of everything who brought about the separation of night and day and sea and land who brought all the firmament firmament oh well anyway permanent on the land who call who, who created the animals and who by the way created you all that one uh, that's the one you are to you are to entrust yourself to if you're facing suffering well if you're no matter whether you're facing suffering or not he's the one and this word entrust or commit is a banking term it means it's to make a deposit for safekeeping in other words, my soul, your soul, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, is deposited in the bank of God the Creator, where it cannot be touched. Where it is secure, and no robber can get there, is the idea here. And then secondly, he says, um, you're to entrust your soul to a faithful to Creator in doing good. That's the second thing. And doing good. And doing what is right is the idea here. It's, it's, a, it's, an entreat, it's entreating us to commit to a faithful creator, enabling us to rest in his power and purpose. Psalms 31. I'm going to read just some selected verses from this psalm. But Psalms 31, verses 1 through 5, he says, In you, O Yahweh, I have taken refuge. Let me never be ashamed. In your righteousness, protect me. Incline your ear to me. Deliver me quickly. Be be to me a rock of strength, a fortress to save. For you are a high rock and a fortress. For your namesake, you will lead and guide me. You will bring me out of the net which they have secretly laid for me. You are my strength. Into your hands I commit my spirit. You have ransomed me, O Yahweh, God of truth. And then in the final verses, verses 23 and 24, he says, O love Yahweh with all his holy ones. Yahweh guards the faithful but repays Fully, the ones who um, those who act in lofty pride, be strong and let your cart be encouraged, and all you will wait, and all you who wait for Yahweh. 
That's that's the idea of the commitment he's calling us to. Jude chapter, uh, not chapter, Jude verses twenty four and twenty five is benediction, which I think is appropriate to conclude this this with. It says this: Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and make you stand in his presence, in his his glory, in the presence of his glory blameless with great joy to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord be glory, majesty, might, authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. I don't know how to close it any better. But at any rate, at any rate, uh, that's the idea here. Uh, He's telling us that our trials bring blessing. Uh, that our trials, that we need to understand those trials. God means them to grow us, to strengthen us, to make us stronger, to make us better servants in this world. And ultimately, we are to, no matter what we face, entrust our soul to the depository of the bank of God, if you will. And in that, keep doing what is right. Keep doing what is good. Any comments or questions this morning? left. <laughs> I made it in the time frame today. <laughs> I liked uh, your comments and made, really kind of made those sections jump out for me on around verse 15 or around um, yeah, verse 15. And it's easy to skim over that because you say, well, I'm not a murderer. You know, I'm not a thief or an evildoer or a troublesome uh, person. Really. But actually, if you think about it, like how often are you actually suffering for Christ's name versus the idiocy that you destroy in the world? Right? Like the mistakes that you make whether that's getting involved in being a busybody in church affairs and getting caught up in drama or, you know, making a mistake at work or whatever, or are you actually being persecuted because you're naming Christ? Exactly. And that narrows it down quite yeah. a bit. Um, it does. It's a good challenge. Yeah, it, it, that, that does. I, I think about, you know, um, you know Peter, Peter warns young widows to get married. So that they don't wind up running around town gossiping. And that goes to all of us, you know. You want to destroy a church quickly? Have a bunch of gossips in it. You know, sticking their nose in everybody else's business. That's, that's a reality. And, and uh, it's done it more than once. Anyway, let's close. Lord God, I, I don't know of any better words than the words that, uh, that Jude expressed in, in his, his amen uh, and his benediction. But uh, may we entrust our souls to you. May we, may we deposit our whole being with you, knowing that you are a faithful God who, who, not, only, who not only protects us and guides us, but is the one who actually created us. You know us more intimately than we could ever know ourselves. And Lord, work within us. Keep us strong. Keep us faithful. Draw us closer to yourself. And we would thank you and we praise you in the name of Jesus. Amen.